From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing the current events impacting the worlds of business and politics. I'm your host today, Matt McDonald. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Nick Timmerhouse, the Chief Economics Correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Nick covers the Federal Reserve and U.S. economic policy and markets, and he's joining us today to talk about his newly released book, Trillion Dollar Triage, How Jay Powell and the Fed Battled a President in a Pandemic and Prevented Economic Disaster. The book is available at your favorite bookseller, and I highly recommend picking it up. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. So I uh, I can't say it's always uh, fun reliving the core of the markets crisis during the pandemic in, in reading the book, but... Um, but this is definitely a part of our history that's going to be talked about and studied for for decades. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you approached telling the story of the crisis. Well, sure. So I covered these events as they were unfolding day by day, and it felt at the time like every day the Fed was doing, um, you know, every day they were pulling a page from the 2008 playbook that Ben Bernanke had put together. And I remember at the beginning of one week, I had written something saying, you know, they're they're going to deploy Bernanke's playbook. And someone at the Fed said, are you sure about that? Doesn't seem like things are getting, you know, that crazy. And by the end of the week, they had pretty much run through that entire playbook. So that was sort of, to me, the first draft of this history. And then when I had the chance uh, to write the book, uh, which I began at the end of 2020, uh, that felt a little bit like the second draft, taking all of those uh, you know, fragments and trying to put them together and tell a story. And that story really was that we avoided a complete financial catastrophe in March of 2020, when, of course, we still had an economic catastrophe, a public health catastrophe. But if you had layered on top of that, the inability of financial markets to function, you know, we take for granted now that everything worked out, that you know, everybody was able to go who worked on Wall Street and work remotely. Trading floors were not set up to do that. Um, you know, so we take for granted that there wasn't a financial crisis and that the unemployment rate, even though it went almost to 15 percent, came back down very quickly. Um, you know, so sometimes it feels like, you know, the CIA doesn't get to brag about the crises they avert. Uh, and this is this is a similar situation at least for the first half of 2020. Obviously, the economy is going through some really challenging episodes right now, um, and that's also a part of the story. But this was about sort of the the disasters that maybe didn't materialize and that certainly could have. Talk to me about the, um, I mean, you raise a really interesting point on the, on, uh, the 2008 financial crisis and kind of the, I don't know, that I, I think that there, that cast a shadow over, and not in a bad way. It's just it's it, it shaped how people thought about financial crisis. It, it was a pivotal pivotal experience for a ton of policymakers involved. Where do you think that that? And you mentioned kind of Bernanke's playbook from that time. How do you think that the the overhang from that and the lessons learned from that set the stage for the response to the pandemic? Well, I think that even though the main policymakers here were not around, so Powell and Mnuchin, um, you know, everybody on the Fed board at this time was really not around in 2008, 
they had learned a lot. You saw how terrible the recovery was after the financial crisis. And so there was this immediate recognition of whatever we do, we don't want to have that happen again. And you saw Jay Powell talking about that as recently as a year ago, you know, when the unemployment rate was back down to 6%. And he was saying, we don't want to spend another eight years trying to get all these jobs back. We want to have a really uh, aggressive response now. So I think you saw that all the way through the crisis, which was don't hold back. Don't do less because you think you're going to create some moral hazard uh, promise to do as much as you think you can do and, and um, you know, really prepare for the worst. And so that's what you saw in March 2020. And the title of the book, Trillion Dollar Triage, really initially came from, if you look at the week of March 9th of 2020, that was the week that the financial crisis, you know, exploded. You had, uh, it's funny here, you know, we're sitting in, in uh, end of March 2022 talking about an oil price shock. Well, you had an oil price shock in the other direction when the Saudis and the Russians basically uh, decided they were going to keep pumping and and drilling. On March 9th, uh, 2020, OPEC failed to come up with an agreement. And you immediately see that ripple through financial markets. The title of the book comes from later in that week when the Fed began to do these remarkable interventions. They were offering you know, it, on paper, it was one and a half trillion dollars of overnight lending that they were making available through something called the repo market. But what it really meant was an unlimited amount of money was going to be available to Wall Street firms, the primary dealers that deal directly with the New York Fed uh, in order to make sure that lending markets didn't seize up. And what you saw was very low uptake on those overnight uh, loan operations. So the triage was every day now the Fed dialing up the 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 support they were trying to provide to the market they went and couldn't they couldn't get banks to borrow from each other so they said all right we'll purchase treasury securities directly on march 13th this is friday march 13th the fed uses an existing authority from a program they had to purchase treasury bills and powell says we'll buy across the curve we'll buy treasury securities across the curve because the treasury market was beginning to have some uh, pretty dramatic seizures. And that gets them to the weekend where they have the emergency rate cut. They drop rates to zero. They promise to purchase $700 billion in treasury mortgage securities. And you think at that point, all right, they've thrown the kitchen sink. They had that Sunday night announcement. And what happens? You know, markets, futures markets are limit down. The markets are down dramatically at the open on Monday, March 16th. And so that next week is just a series of steps where the Fed is trying to get ahead of the crisis. They think they they keep thinking they've done the max. And then it turns out markets are just in complete pandemonium. And so the Fed has to do even more. What do you think? It's interesting. There's a dimension to some of the stuff of the, um, you know, in 2008, where you had this, you had a, a debt overhang problem. You had solvency issues among um, banks in terms of like underlying assets. There, there's like a lot of stuff going on in terms of like the the mechanics of the market versus this crisis, which was a clear exogenous event from right. the from the virus itself. Do you think that that opened up the thinking in terms of what is possible of kind of like, I mean, there's no, there, I don't think that people really talked about like, uh, well, you didn't, you know, you should have known that there's a possibility of a virus. So we, we can't be, 
you know, we can't be bailing out everyone who makes bad risk. That just wasn't part of the conversation this time around, right? Yeah, no, you're right. It was a totally different type of shock. But there were initially some of those concerns. And I write in the book about a meeting at the Fed before everybody went remote. This was that week we were talking about before. It was on Thursday, March 12th. And you have a, a couple of, you know, central bankers are sort of by their nature conservative. Uh, they don't want to overreact <laughs> to something because they don't want to create a perception that there's an even bigger Fed put in the market, right? This idea that they will backstop um, investors at the first signs of distress. And so they're going around the table and there's a Fed lawyer or an economist who basically says there's these, there are these treasury market trades that are blowing up. They're called the basis trade and, uh, and, they're, and they're unwinding quite badly. And, you know, there's a view around the table, which is, well, these people knew what they were entering into when they borrowed heavily to uh, to make these normally very profitable and seemingly low risk trades. They were no longer low risk, low risk. They were blowing up. You know, traders were getting their faces ripped off. And Powell intervenes finally. And he says, look, this is a once in a, a lifetime world historical crisis. We're not going to we're not going to worry about that right now. And so he basically is saying Whatever concerns we normally would have about moral hazard, this isn't the time to have those concerns. And you see, by contrast, in the second half of 2007, when the mortgage crisis is really beginning to seize up, you know, the private label mortgage-backed security, conduit markets, asset-backed paper, you see a lot of stress. And the attitude inside the Fed is, all right, well, these people, you know, they made these risky uh, deals. We can't just come to the rescue. Now, the Fed did that eventually. But yeah, there was this idea back then of people need to take their own medicine. We can't rescue them. And one question I have, of course, is what happens if there is a actual man-made crisis in the future, right? Where uh, leveraged loans are blowing up, but it's because it's not because a pandemic has grounded every flight and you know put revenues to zero. It's because of of uh, you know just poor um, risk management planning. Um, by different actors in the corporate and financial markets. This wasn't that. Powell decides that early on. There are some people of the Fed who think that, you know, Jay Powell's overreacting. Randy Quarles says that in this book, that he thinks at one point Powell's sort of, you know, getting ahead of himself. The Cyrus, you're overreacting to it. Um, but uh, Powell felt a sense of urgency, and he tells his colleagues at one point, it feels like we're swimming after a speedboat. We have to get ahead of this. And, um, and, you know, you bring that to the present and it feels like the Fed's a little bit in the same situation right now with a yeah. completely different set of circumstances trying to figure out, geez, 8% inflation, not what we were expecting. And now if the Fed is talking about, you know, jumbo sized rate increases this summer. Powell is, again, the person who has to deal with something that the Fed hasn't dealt with in decades. And, uh, you know, he's he's going to have quite the wild ride here in his second yeah. term. You talked about him coming back from, I think there was a conference in Riyadh and just thinking like, wow, this is really speeding up. It, we're going to have to like think about this and get ahead of some of this stuff. Um, how did they think about, I mean, you have on the one hand, you have Powell and then some of the Fed board with some difference in thinking, but then you also had, I mean, some of the, some of the um, conversations that were happening between Powell and Congress and then the different pace that the market was absorbing what was coming. How did it's an interesting question of like there there and there were conversations at the Fed board about 
you know, do we use all our ammo up now and try and get ahead of it or do we wait? And then there was dynamics of if they make big announcements, does that induce panic? Because everyone's kind of thinking, oh, my gosh, they think this is going to be a huge problem. I need to get how did they balance? Like, how do you think about the timing? It's clear that they were kind of chasing the chasing along, trying to get ahead of the crisis until they finally got ahead of it. But do they have to hit that timing right? Could they have done it earlier or would that have induced more panic? I mean, clearly, if they had done it later, you could have had worse impacts on the market. But how how did that timing play out? Well, yeah, there's always that question whenever the Fed does something of of what information do they have that we don't have? And I think that was especially true here because you know, there were rumors going around on Wall Street that the Fed had access to CDC or private, uh, you know, confidential public health data yeah. that the rest of the investor public didn't have. That wasn't true. But that, you know, that's that's one fear you have. And um, and again, I think people forget now how every day, every day, so much was happening so that what you thought on Monday was no longer viable on Wednesday or on Thursday. In the last week of February, for example, Rich Clarida goes, he's the vice chairman at the time. He goes and gives a speech, at, uh, you know, the Washington Hilton um, and to an economics conference. And he basically says, it's too soon to say what, you know, how this thing in China is going to change the outlook. Jay has just come back from the G20 summit in Riyadh, and he's decided this thing's coming here. And, you know, it's just a matter of time. If there's six cases in New York City, there'll be 660, there'll be 600, there'll be 6,000. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so by the end of that week, markets are now actually beginning to, to freak out. And Powell puts out a statement on that Friday afternoon the market's down like a thousand points that afternoon. Uh, he puts out a statement saying, we'll act as appropriate. That's code for we're ready to cut rates. And then he spends that weekend, you know, pondering what they're going to do. And they decide that Monday night, he gathers the FOMC for an emergency meeting. There's a G7 meeting the next morning. So they announced that first emergency cut. But then at the time, the Fed begins, you know, some of the materials I have, they, they're debating, well, we have a meeting in two weeks. Do we need to do anything at that meeting? Maybe maybe we've done enough. Maybe this half point rate cut will be enough. And now we won't have to. I mean, the idea at the time that you would be cutting rates to zero before that scheduled meeting in mid-March, no one was thinking about that. And then you get to the end of that week, you have the tenure uh, dropping below a half point, just ridiculous sort of movements in the bond market. Um, and I think it's at that point people realized this was just like nothing that we had been uh, prepared to deal with ever before. It's it's so interesting the way that you can know, as Powell clearly did, you can know that what exponential growth of the virus would imply and mean in terms of timelines and and what happens and yet that's not how people, that's not the timeline that people operate on. So even if you right. know that's coming, it's really hard to get ahead of it. Right. And there was this question about, well, really, what can monetary policy do, right? right. How, how does a rate cut really help you deal with a pandemic where you're actually going to be shutting the economy down and telling people to stay home and not spend money? So why would you even want low interest rates? But that, you know, this was really about making sure that financial conditions didn't get even tighter um, and scarier. I mean, the I think the other key moment is at the end of the week of February 16th that you go into that Friday um, and there's a debate over whether the Fed needs to intervene in the corporate bond market, which is something they did not do in 2008. And the fear was 
that at that time, only the best companies were going to be able to borrow a Microsoft or a Google. But when those deals priced, you were going to see them at such rich spreads that people were going to say, well, geez, if that's what Google or Microsoft has to borrow at, then, you know, if you're Ford, if you're Macy's, you're toast, you're not, you're going to be shut out of the market. And so that was really, you know, they decided that weekend that they were going to purchase corporate debt. They were going to actually help issue securities in the primary corporate bond market, which they never had to do. But they make that announcement on Monday, March 23rd. And that ends up being the bottom for the for the financial crisis. Markets were down 33% over the previous four weeks. But the Fed's promise, essentially, that they would do whatever they needed to do, whatever it takes, was enough at that point. And investors began to say, gee, if the Fed's willing to buy a triple B-rated corporate security then I'll buy that. And you saw this massive explosion of corporate bond issuance, uh, you know, completely as the economy's shutting down. It was, you know, very dissonant to see markets rallying when you had, you know, long lines of cars at these food banks. And, and we didn't even have the unemployment numbers that we knew were coming of, you know, catastrophic layoffs. Fortunately, they were mostly temporary, but uh, just a truly head-spinning series of, of events there. It really was. You mentioned the the interventions in the, in the corporate bond market. And of course, like they, they went through the Bernanke playbook and then some. Can you talk a little bit about Andreas Lehner and the, the kind of contingency disaster plan? I mean, they were doing a scenario planning for a pandemic or something when the pandemic really hit, weren't they? Like what, how did the Fed yeah. think about like the tools memo and how, how, how were they prepared for kind of the extraordinary circumstances on that side? Cause I actually thought that was pretty impressive as a kind of lesson learned from 2008 coming into this. So after, after the 2008 crisis, Bernanke taps an economist at the Fed, Nellie Lang. She's now at the Treasury Department as the undersecretary or the uh, uh, deputy secretary for domestic finance under Janet Yellen. But he puts Nellie Lang in charge of a new division of financial stability. And the weakness, the Fed, you know, uh, took a financial crisis to see this, but they regulated the banking system. They studied the macroeconomy, employment, GDP, inflation, but they didn't have anybody sort of doing surveillance of the broader financial system. And so Bernanke created that new division. And he says to Nellie Lang, when he creates it, he says, when you tell me what the base case is, I want you also to tell me, you know, what are the worst case things like relative, you know, within a reasonable confidence interval, what, what, what are the bad cases? And let's prepare for those. And so that is really the beginning of this division of financial stability. Andreas Lennart is the deputy when Nellie Lang retires from the Fed in 2017 or 2016, Lennart becomes the director and so their whole approach is to have to kind of catastrophize, to think about what are the worst things that could happen in the financial system. That could be CLOs blowing up, but it could also be a cyber attack that pushes a big bank off of the grid or, you know, removes access from Fedwire, which is the, the main arteries uh, that the Fed uses to manage uh, processing of payments every day in the financial system. So they actually do have a study they've done on pandemics that Leonard's group has done, but they really looked at, you know, they weren't contemplating the economy shutting down to deal with a deadly pathogen. They looked at excess mortality and whether uh, insurance companies, life insurance companies would face increased, uh, you know, payment demands because people died in a pandemic. 
Um, but there is this group at the Fed that's charged with being sort of the first responder. And so, Leonard, as the pandemic, as the as the virus is not a pandemic, but as it's moving through Wuhan and China, uh, he's coming up with what's termed the tools memo. What are the things we could do that, you know, if we really needed, if we get into a, a break glass in case of emergency situation? And so he's working on that as, uh, you know, as the crisis is unfolding and it all gets deployed relatively quickly. Uh, but they did have people who were, you know, who were trained to think about these sort of black swan events. And you and you uh, my recollection, too, is that you said that there were there were even even after they'd kind of, um, you know, achieved stability, say that there were still um, possibilities and tools that they kind of left on the shelf that were that w- if if what they had done hadn't worked right. fully, that there was more that they could have done, too. So, for example, you saw big outflows from open-end mutual funds, from corporate bond mutual funds. They had already backstopped the uh, in the money market mutual funds with a midnight um, emergency lending facility announcement. Um, but if the corporate bond rescue program had not succeeded, the Fed, I write for the first time in this book, was prepared to backstop the the open-end bond funds. And I think that's important because it raises questions about, you know, the moral hazard we were talking about before. I write in the book that, you know, it's it's one thing to not worry about these moral hazard issues during a crisis. So it's the wrong time to worry about it. But after the crisis, you know, now that we know what the Fed did and what the Fed considered doing, it does raise questions about, well, do there need to be some sort of uh, reforms in place because if this Fed put exists, if we now know the Fed is willing to backstop the corporate market at some level, uh, you know, what what can be done now to make the system more resilient so that there isn't this expectation going forward that, you know, if people are losing a lot of money and that's threatening to create mass unemployment, that the Fed won't feel like they have to step in again. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk in the book about how it has a quality of uh, what was uh, Pell's phrase, getting the boats and go like there, there was a, just a kind of like, get it done. We need to solve this problem now and we'll deal with the other problems later. But there is an undercurrent of reticence, as you say, like central bankers are pretty conservative people. And there is an undercurrent of an awareness of the precedent that is being set throughout it of, okay, well, we're doing it now. Will it will it come back to haunt us later? Will the expectations be, then be in place? And you know, it can be tough to put the genie back in the bottle on some of that stuff. Well, and and related point. I mean, let's talk about the CARES Act for a minute because the yeah. CARES Act was a huge part of this. And I think at the time there was a fear or a sense that maybe the CARES Act was going to be like TARP, right? TARP yeah. was this thing that everybody saw in the kind of technocratic circles as necessary. But it became so politically unpopular, of course, bailing out banks, $700 billion yeah. bailout, and then the AIG bonuses, and da 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 CARES, actually, in hindsight, isn't that controversial, right? You yeah. had people yeah. on the kind of the libertarian right saying, this is outrageous, we're bailing everything out. You had, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez opposing it, saying this was a corporate bailout. Uh, there was a lot of unhappiness over all of the CARES Act backstops. The CARES Act allowed the Fed to have $454 billion billion dollars of treasury money to backstop all these lending programs. And yet there was barely any Fed lending. There were very few losses in the program. We may see some losses now on the Main Street program, but you know, the Main Street program barely lent any it was 17, 18 billion dollars. And I wonder now 
what would have been the impact if Congress and Treasury and the Fed had stepped back, stepped back and said, you know what, some of these sectors, they, they borrowed too much during good times, let them go. We saw used car prices go yeah. very high last year, in part because the rental car companies liquidated during the pandemic. And then last year in the reopening, they had to replace their feet, fleets. You had chip shortages limiting new car production, but you had a 40% increase in used car prices last year. How, how do you think inflation would, how much higher would it be now if Congress had stood back and said, you know what, let's let some of these industries go because, you know, so that's another kind of the dog that doesn't bark. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you don't hear that so much today that, gee, you know, CARES actually, I think people are going to look back and say, uh, wow, that was $2 trillion pretty well spent. Well, it's interesting too, because, um, you know, you make the point in the book that the with the CARES Act is that it was a bit of a congressional led effort where, you know, the the White House seemingly was MIA on it. You had that you had that uh, that passage about um, McConnell telling the senators, this is you need to do this. You're not just outsourcing this to staff. I mean, it's a it's a weird and interesting kind of old school congressional approach where they're really coming up with ideas and crafting the legislation and all that sort of stuff. And I don't know if they're I mean, in theory, maybe they're maybe they're closer to the action in terms of their constituents. Maybe there's that creates more political buy in. I mean, structurally in a crisis, Congress is not. If, if it's like if the if you told me like oh well Congress is going to ride to the rescue that's not that's not the phrase that everybody wants to hear but in terms of CARES Act it did in this instance it did seem to work yeah and and you know the other thing that was sort of a surprise was that the the Congress which was so unhappy with the Fed for bailing out AIG bailing out Bear in yeah. 2008 comes in and 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 constrains their their emergency lending powers and says. If you're going to do this again, you can't just do it to support one company. It needs to be broad-based eligibility. You need to charge a penalty rate. You need to have the support. You need to have two keys turned, basically. You need five governors on the Fed and the Treasury Secretary to approve these programs. That wasn't a requirement in 2008. So the Fed had been criticized for years for being too involved in the economy. And yet when the crisis struck, everyone sort of says, Fed, help. You know, Democrats don't trust the the Trump administration. They're afraid the Treasury Department's going to politicize lending yeah. programs. So you don't end up with a Reconstruction Finance Corp or a Resolution Trust Corp the way you had in pre- past crises, kind of a, a public company or a GSC almost to operationalize this. And Republicans are comfortable with Powell. They've gotten to know the guy. They've seen him stand up to the Trump attacks. And so they like him. And the Fed ends up playing sort of a unusually front and center role, even on some of the credit and fiscal programs. And there are a lot of concerns at the time that this is going to damage the Fed's independence. You know, someone who works in the restructuring industry said to me, you're going to be asking Powell at every press conference about all the defaulted corporate loans and business loans that he's made. Uh, and and that was a real concern at the time that this was just going to be a huge, messy, you know, a disaster adventure for the Fed. Of course, now we have, you know, 7% inflation and the Fed having to raise interest rates far faster than anybody expected. So maybe they ended up with, you know, the disaster mess on the, the other end of it. It just wasn't the one that people were worrying about yeah. in uh, March, April, May of 2020. I mean, you were, you were literally coming off impeachment. I mean, you had a, a yes. kind of 
uniquely broken relationship. Nancy Pelosi ripping yeah. up the State of the Union address with the president standing yeah. right there. The the do you think that I mean um, you know Powell in in some respects in in that was kind of right man at the right time for the right job type of thing, but. Do you think that the, you know, he's known for relationships on the Hill. Do you think that that kind of, I don't know, quiet political diplomacy and trust building in both Congress and kind of key administration, is that going to be um, a fixture for the Fed chair role going forward? Do you think that there's aspects of that that become important down the line? I, I do. I think what you see with Powell is someone who sort of observed how damaging he becomes a governor in 2012 and he sees just how damaging the Fed's standing is, even if he thinks the Fed yeah. had done the right things. You had the audit, the Fed stuff before yeah. this. I mean, it, it's a very it was a very different environment not that yeah. long ago. Totally. And so he I think he internalizes all of that. He's a very good listener. He has this weird trait where he can take a sentence and repeat it back backwards, you know, word for word backwards. Um, he, he comes across as a normal person. So when he goes to meet with lawmakers, you know, he doesn't ambush them with his great brains. Uh, he, you know, he plays up the fact that he's not an economist and they like him. You know, I find it sort of surprising that even with this very high inflation right now, which you could blame the Fed for, you could say, well, you overdid it last year, Jay. You provided too much stimulus for too long, but you know the Senate Banking Committee voted on his second term a couple of weeks ago, and it was a twenty-three to one vote. It was twenty-two to one four years ago. So yeah, I think every Fed chair, you know, puts their stamp on the job. The job has gotten very big, right? It's you know, it seemed like Powell had huge shoes to fill because he was following in the footsteps of Bernanke and Yellen, who were two giants of central banking and very well-regarded academic economists. Powell knew. That that was, you know, he wasn't going to be the the big PhD, but he knew where his strengths were. And he said early on when he became chair, I'm going to go up and, you know, wear the carpets out on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Even though, as you know, there really aren't many carpets on Capitol Hill. <laughs> um, certainly we're, we're the, the uh, coronavirus is still with us and the Fed is still dealing with very complicated um, exercises going forward in terms of trying to manage a soft landing in an inflationary environment and all the rest of it. But um, what do you think the lessons are going to be coming out of at least the crisis period uh, for the Fed going forward? Well, I think it's going to depend a lot on what happens this year. You know, the whole rea- the whole response is going to look different if there's a hard landing. Um, but the Fed was very motivated by re- avoiding the mistakes of the past. And so in some respects, you could say they were fighting the last war in particular, you know, two, I think two things that they took out of the, the 2009 to 2020 expansion was um, don't raise interest rates too soon because your models may not be that precise about, you know, where, uh, where, at what point inflation begins to take off when, uh, you know, when the unemployment rate falls. And so they had adopted a new framework that actually said, we'll be more tolerant of higher inflation because we don't want to move too soon. And then Powell was also, I think, impressioned by the taper tantrum in 2013. That was when Ben Bernanke signaled an end to bond buying and long-term yields rose a bunch. It was a violent rush out of cash out of emerging markets. And so Powell in 2021 
was very motivated not to repeat those mistakes. And of course, he spent a lot of time in 2020 telling Congress to spend more money. That wasn't something that Fed chairs normally do. So it spoke, I think, to how concerned the Fed was when they are, they do not like being at zero interest rates. They know that their tools are hard to calibrate, not quite sure how bond buying works, what it does, and they just didn't want to be stuck at zero for years and years and years. So they really erred on the side of overdoing it. And now I think the lessons are going to be different. You know, we, we got hit with a shock. It changed certain uh, dynamics in the economy and the Fed didn't respond to those right away because they were avoiding making the mistakes from the past. So, you know, there may have been different mistakes made and now we're going to have to see how they clean those up. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the the there's a lot of discussion after the financial crisis of kind of, um, I mean, at the time, there's lots of discussion of we know how to solve inflation, but we don't know how to solve deflation. And you've got the Japan case that everybody was paying attention to. And now we've we've kind of got the thing we wished for. Um, yeah. But yeah. at the on the I mean, on some fundamental level, it's interesting as the Fed begins, it's the rate hikes is that it does seem like the markets have confidence in the Fed's um willingness and ability to get inflation under control. I mean, you're looking if as like the yield curve is making its moves now and it, it does it does have that quality of I don't I mean my sense is that it looks like the the question is not whether the Fed has the kind of like willingness and strength to get inflation under control. It's more a question of like are they going to be able to stick the landing right or is it going to crash? And that's it feels like that's going to be the hard piece going forward. Well, they're really, I mean, and Powell has said this, they are banking on help from the supply side of the economy. You can bring yeah. supply and demand into balance by choking off demand, or you can do it by, you know, slowing excess demand, but getting help from supply chains, goods prices not being so extreme, the supply curve being vertical. And, you know, there's they've been trying to buy time. But there's not a lot of time left now. We're yeah. talking about 50 basis point increases at multiple meetings. And if inflation at the end of the year, if we have another year like last year, five or 6% inflation, then the Fed's going to be talking about restrictive policy. And, uh, you know, this isn't, this is going to be uh, a hard landing. Yes. So they really need the relief on the supply side. And it's not at all clear we're going to get it because of what's happened in Ukraine. It feels a little bit like the 1970s, where it's just one shock after another. And um, and you've you know, got you've got shutdowns in China now too. Shutdowns I mean, in China, yeah. It's it's the the Fed's optimistic forecasts at the end of 2021 were relying on a series of things to happen, which so far have only not happened. Have, have not only not happened, but things have broken in the other direction. And that was basically what Powell's message was two weeks ago in his his speech uh, here in Washington. And, you know, so the hawkish pivot is here because the data keep breaking uh, hard against the Fed. Yeah. Nick, it's been great having you with us today. Um, best of luck with the book for listeners. You can you. order a copy. There'll be there'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. Every Friday. Hamilton Place Strategies founding partner Tony Fratto joins John Fagan and Brendan Walsh of Markets Policy Partners for the HPS Macrocast, an in-depth look at the macroeconomic news driving the week. 
Check out the latest episode at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode of HPS Insights. You can find out more about Hamilton Place Strategies' work in our podcasts at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or by following us on Twitter at HPS Insight. I'm your host, Matt McDonald. And as always, thanks for listening to HPS Insights. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.